1: Today we'll be looking at a new theory of God based on our best science. Our guest suggests that we need a new understanding of God. We need a God that can connect us spiritually to the real universe and guide our now globally conscious species toward a long-term and honorable civilization. We'll be exploring a big picture that brings into harmony our understanding of God, our growing scientific knowledge, our human emotions, and our fundamental story of ourselves with our guest, Nancy Ellen Abrams. Nancy Ellen Abrams stands with others at the center of the cosmological revolution and has always been intrigued by science's border with myth. She strives as a philosopher to put the discoveries of modern cosmology into a cultural context. She's an attorney and philosopher of science and one-time atheist, and has worked in a European environmental law think tank, as well as the Office of Technology Assessment of the U.S. Congress. She also co-created the technique of scientific mediation, a process that allows government agencies to make informed and insightful policy decisions on issues where science is crucial but disputed. With her husband, the famed astrophysicist Dr. Joel Premick, who is a distinguished professor of physics and astrophysics at the University of California, Santa Cruz, She has co-authored several books, including The View from the Center of the Universe and The New Universe and the Human Future. She is the author of A God That Could Be Real, Spirituality, Science, and the Future of Our Planet. And I want to let our listeners know that the foreword of this book was written by Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Join us for the next hour as we explore the existence of a force that is worthy of the name of God. With our guest, Nancy Ellen Abrams. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Nancy, welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure. We're talking about this new concept of God, and I would love for you to tell us a little bit about how you arrived at it. Because as I mentioned in the introduction, at one time, you were an atheist, and before that, you you grew up Jewish. So can you tell us a little bit about your background?
2: Yes, uh, it is true that I grew up Jewish, but I was a Jewish atheist, and um, I was an atheist really pretty much, I would have been an atheist all my life, but for the fact that uh, I found myself in a 12-step program, and uh, I needed to overcome a food addiction so at the same time, I was working with my husband, who is, as you mentioned, um, one of the world's leading cosmologists, because he and his collaborators uh, were developing the mod- what has become the modern theory of the universe. The- it's called the cold dark matter theory, or when you put it together with dark energy, it's the double dark theory, dark matter and dark energy being the main constituents of our universe, And this theory was really an attempt to answer the deepest uh, or at least one of the deepest scientific um, problems of the time. And the, the problem was this. If the Big Bang was symmetrical in all directions, then why isn't the universe just a great big soup of particles? Why isn't it just a bigger expanding soup of particles? But instead, there are these beautiful spiral and elliptical galaxies. They're scattered throughout the universe, but not randomly. They lie along long filaments as if someone had sprinkled glitter on invisible lines of glue. And every fleck of glitter was a galaxy of hundreds of billions of stars on the enormous size scale of the universe we're talking now. And where those filaments intersect, there are giant clusters of galaxies. But why? What transformed the particles and energy that came out of the Big Bang into this incredibly elaborate structure? No one knew. No one knew why there were galaxies, No one knew why they had the shape that they did. So this was an enormously ambitious theory. So my husband started working on this shortly after we were married. Uh, It was around 1980. And um, because I have this background in philosophy of science, and I've always been interested in science, I was following along very closely. I would go to all the conferences. I really wanted to understand what are they doing? started to realize that uh, we do not live in the universe that everybody thinks we're living in. We're living in a totally different universe. And I thought, well, what does this mean for the rest of us, the non-scientists? We need to understand what universe we're living in, and nobody knows. So Joel and I, my husband Joel, and I spent 10 years developing and teaching again and again this course at the University of California called Cosmology and Culture, where we try to understand the connection historically between the way that various cultures have looked at their universe and how their religion and their politics and so forth developed in a kind of um, accord with that view of the universe. So at the same time I'm doing all of this, I'm trying to recover from this very annoying eating disorder. And I got into this 12-step program, and I'm told, it only works if you have a higher power. You have to have a higher power. And I thought, oh, right, this is really going to work for me. I'm an atheist, and there's no way I'm going to trick myself into believing in a higher power. But by pretending or acting as if, which is the you know official way that they tell you to do it, acting as if I had a higher power, basically imagining I had something talking to me, I started to get better. Oh, my eating improved. I was more relaxed. I I mean, my whole life was changing. I was getting along better with people, and I had no clue why this was working. It just seemed weird. So I really had to acknowledge that something real was happening. I was not saying that there was a God, but something real was happening to me by pretending that there was a God. And what was that thing that was happening? So by trying to put together my process uh, in of recovery with my uh, kind of burgeoning understanding of this universe that we're living in and how to think about it, I realized that um, If I wanted a God in my life, and I really, really did, but I didn't want a fake one and I didn't want a borrowed one, if I wanted one, it had to be real. And to be real, for me, did not mean real in a common sense way because I think I knew even as a child that that was not possible. But it had to be real in the double-dark universe. It had to be real in the universe we actually live in. And that was my quest. And I have to tell you, it took me a really long time to figure it out.
1: And... and it, it wasn't just your t- you finally came to that place where it wasn't just you talking to yourself there that that you were creating it within yourself you you have come to
2: some knowledge of. oh yeah I mean I went through that part I went through the, the stage of thinking oh this idea of higher power is working because it's my highest uh thinking it's my best thinking that I'm Sort of reason the moment I started going in that direction, I just lost my recovery. It a whole, nothing worked for me anymore. It's as if I realized that if my higher power were inside me, then it would be under the control of my disease, because my brain was under the control of my disease. And that just didn't work. and it didn't, it didn't work. work. So I was really very frustrated. i I knew that my higher power could not be outside me. And I knew it couldn't be inside me, so I was stymied for you quite were a while. Very, you were stuck for a while, yeah. and I, I'm interested in the
1: question that came up for you. You said, "Okay, I can't, I can't be with a fake God or a borrowed God." You use those two words, and um, then you, with your study of science and working with your husband and understanding having some understanding of this new view of the cosmos, you have really gone back into history and looked at how has a view of God come to us through our understanding of the universe. So you're going back in history, let's say, going back to Egypt, let's say, for example, that their view of God came out of their understanding. So I'd love for you to kind of give us a little thumbnail of the history of the idea of God in,
2: in time. It's fascinating that the way that most people think about God today is the opposite of how people thought about it in biblical times. It's not what people thought. It's the opposite. So in the ancient world, and let's go back long before the Hebrews. Let's go back to ancient Egypt and Sumer. The gods were not just random characters or powers. They represented the forces of nature as people carefully observed them. So the, the gods were responsible for the way the world worked. They were absolutely intricately tied into the natural world. They were, there were different views, of course, in these different countries and different religions, but still, that was the basic idea. And uh, in, um, in Genesis 2, for example, this is one of my favorite examples, um, the order of creation in the beginning of Genesis is that uh, on day one, God creates light. On day two, God divides the waters. On day three, God creates the plants. It's not until day four that God creates the sun and and the moon and the stars. So theologians have for centuries been thinking, how is it possible that God created the sun after the plants when everyone knows that plants can't live without sunshine? How could there have been plants without sunshine? But when you look at this as a historical document, you realize that the Jews who wrote the Bible had been living, or at least the Old Testament, or part of the Old Testament. Oh, right? I'm only talking about the okay. Old Testament. All right. okay. They're Jews. Okay, all right. <laughs> right. Just to be clear, <laughs> right yeah. that that Genesis, the story of Gen- in Genesis, uh, the people who wrote that had either been living in Babylon and just returned to Jerusalem, or they were the children of people who did that because. The um Babylonians had uh, captured all of the leading Jews and taken them to Babylon first for two generations at least. and And then Persia conquered Babylon and let the Jews go back to Jerusalem. And that was when the Bible was written. So okay, let wait. wait. I'm going to stop you right
1: there. That was when the Bible was written. We're going to come back to that in just one moment. I want to tell our listeners, I'm here with Nancy Ellen Abrams. And she's the author of The God That Could Be Real, Spirituality, Science, and the Future of Our Planet. And if you'd like to know more about her work and her other books, you can go to her website, nancyellenabrams.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine willis toms You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Nancy Ellen Abrams, and she's the author of The God That Could Be Real Spirituality, Science, and the Future of Our Planet. And we were just talking about the writing of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, or the Torah, let's say. The Torah, the, the, it's Torah. the Torah. And I was, I was shocked to remember that the Torah was only written 500 years before the birth of Christ. So, yes, uh, yes. I but mean, it, actually written down, although it was, I think, uh, verbally, it was a verbal sort of passing on, too.
2: There were many old stories incorporated in it, but what I wanted to um, point out was that when that story was written of the creation and the order of the, the things that God created, it was not written to say, this is actually the order that God created in What it was really saying was it was taking the order of the gods in Babylon, and there had been a god of um, agriculture had the third day of the week, and the god of astronomy had the fourth day of the week. And the writer of the Torah was saying the Hebrew god is taking over the powers of the Babylonian gods. So it was not about the order of creation, it was about taking over the powers of creation from the Babylonian gods.
1: So they were using some of the concepts of the Babylonians and incorporating them into a bigger story, so to speak. They were
2: taking Babylon and saying their god was bigger. And (laughs) the reason this matters is that God, even then, was being tied to nature. God God was connected to nature. My point in getting into all this was to say that after all of these centuries where science has been taking over so much of our understanding of nature, we have now gotten to a place where for many, many people, perhaps even a majority of people, God is not only not tied to nature, God is living in some spiritual realm that is immune to the laws of physics, not even part of our universe. And that is the total opposite of what God and the gods were in the beginning. And there's a word for that. God is supernatural.
1: So That's that right. is like beyond nature. Is, That's right. I guess is the
2: other interpretation of that word. But that is not what God started out as. God was nature in the beginning. Supernatural is something that was only invented when people started distinguishing between uh and, and a and big reality. change
1: happened when ga- the ideas of Galileo and Copernicus were accepted that, oh, that, that Earth is not the center of the universe and
2: there's something else going on, and the, the, the Earth is not flat. Well, well, it was known that the Earth was not flat ever since the ancient Greeks. And, and interestingly, this was about the same time that the uh, Hebrews were writing the Bible. The Greeks were just about to figure out that the Earth was a sphere. And they thought everything went around the sphere. And um, that did become the dominant picture throughout the Middle Ages. So throughout the entire Middle Ages, all educated people thought that the Earth was a sphere at the center of the universe and all the celestial bodies revolved around it. So, for example, this ridiculous story that people thought Columbus was going to sail off the edge of the world because it was flat... (laughs) <laughs> that was a made-up story by Washington Irving. That was never believed by any intelligent person in the Middle Ages because they all knew the earth was round. So the
1: importance of all of this, of understanding that as, as like, the Bible really, the New Testament and all of that really started to be written at this time and, and it really reflected a view that was... In coordination with science,
2: with our view of the cosmos. Actually, the New Testament doesn't really have a cosmology. Okay. It just relies on the Torah. There really was no clear understanding at that time. So, and, and at that time, there was also some sense that uh, you know, the Greeks had a different view from the Hebrews. So really, the early Christians just stayed away from the topic. If you look at the New Testament, you'll find pretty much nothing about creation. So nothing
1: that's true. Nothing nothing about creation in the nothing New Testament. New, right? right. Okay. So now here we are at this time we're getting another view of the universe. And where where matter or planets and galaxies and all these things that we can see with our eyes and our telescopes seem to be what the universe is made up, but what we're discovering that mostly the, the cosmos is made up of dark energy and dark matter that we can't even see. That's right. So but how does that affect our view now of God in
2: these times? The first thing that I realized was that uh, of the universe as we now understand it, which is 13.8 billion years old and has... Uh, evolved from nothing but particles and energy into all of the amazing forms that we see today. This universe could not have been created by any intention. First of all, evolution is not something that can be used to intentionally create anything. There really couldn't have been some intelligence at the beginning that chose evolution to create what we have because you can't use evolution to create anything. There's a tremendous amount of randomness involved in that. So the idea that there was a God in the beginning that could have used evolution is does not work.
1: But what about um, setting up the laws of evolution, let's say? A lot, a lot of people would believe, okay, well the laws were set up by some universal creative spirit uh, and they're in place, set those in
2: motion. I don't really see the point of even having the idea of the spirit because we don't really know where the laws came from. The thing is that the, the basic pattern of our universe is that complexity evolves from simpler states. It never goes the I mean, evolution has created these complex things, you know, human beings. It doesn't go the other way. So how could there have been something so complex that it could have planned and created an entire universe and set up all these laws out of nothing. That, to me, is the least likely possibility of all. And it would also mean that God would have had to exist before there was a universe.
1: But it's a very comforting thought. Because yes. when we look at humankind, we can see what a mess we've made of things. And if we don't have some some sort of higher intelligence at work in the world, then it's pretty scary. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I just want to speak that one out loud. It might be comforting,
2: but it's uh, it also needs to be true to be really comforting. And the fact right, Wait, uh, just say wait, that
1: again, because that's an important. It needs to be true to be truly comforting. Yes. It can't just be a belief or, or a hope or a wish.
2: No, there are lots of things that you can say that will give people psychological comfort while things fall apart all around them. And what good is that? So and what good is that
1: is that they might—what uh, good is that is if things are falling apart and then if they have this comfort, they might relax more and be able to be more creative than in solutions.
2: That's one thing that they could do if—, if They might be, but— They're unlikely to find solutions that will actually work in harmony with the way the universe actually operates. So that's your main point, is that there is a way
1: to tap into a real God that is in harmony with the cosmology that we now know about the
2: universe. Here's the thing. There's definitely a benefit in having a God. People who have a strong belief in God have a big advantage It's a powerful advantage, but it cannot be that that, that to get that advantage, you have to believe in a fantasy. Because I believe that that advantage has got to be older than the gods. That's probably what got us going. And we need to be able to get the benefits and the power and the self-confidence and the large sense of self that you can get from a belief in God. We've got to be able to get that through the lens of reality and not through a metaphor that really has no, uh, no applicability to the world we actually live in.
1: Okay, so now we're getting down to the crux of it. So what
2: is that God How, as you see it? Okay, so um, I believe that uh, the closest relationships are really the most important in our lives. It's not really the distant relationships. I mean, we're all, you know, we're Americans. We have this connection, I suppose. But it's our families that are the closest to us, the people that we know, the people that we love. Why should it be different with God? Why should we feel more comfort from a God that is so far away from us that it is outside the universe, a place to which we can have no contact? Why should that be more comfortable than a God that is really present? And the way that I'm looking at this is that...
1: Uh, although God, so my, I, I, sure. When you say uh, a God that's outside the universe, but many of us would believe in an ever-present God, so we're not thinking about it or feeling that... we We feel that there is that God is present, not not just an absent God on the you know, on the other side of the our known universe, but that that a God acting within
2: this universe. But if it created the universe
1: If it created the universe, where was it? So that that's that's a big one. I know that you mentioned that in the book and when you said, all right, here's here's an idea, but it's not relevant to to our are knowing God, that God created the universe. And I realized, oh, I have that belief. Uh, When I read that, I thought, hmm, I guess I did believe, or do believe, underneath all of my intellect that God created the universe.
2: It's not necessary that God created the universe. God doesn't have to have created Lots of people have prayed to saints and other gods that didn't create the universe. What I'm trying to get at is, what does it take to be God? What's the bottom line? Yes, what is it? What is the minimum that we are still willing to say, this is God? Because if you tack on all these additional things that God has to be that are impossible, like omniscience, not knowing everything. You, if you make God omniscient, God can't exist. Because in our universe, in a relativistic universe, there cannot be full knowledge Anywhere of anything, because the universe is bigger than light has had time to get to, or information from one side to the other.
1: So that's that's like one of your main premises is that, and you talk about this in scientific terms that that any scientific principle that's true cannot be universal.
2: That's true. That's right.
1: So. Okay, this is kind of boggling the mind. Okay, so then
2: if God is true, God is not universal. Well that's interesting. I didn't actually um draw that conclusion, but yes, you're right. That's exactly right. And my version of God is not universal. It is planetary. And uh no, well, we're gonna talk about that in just one moment. That's okay. that's
1: that's we're getting down to this uh, this view now. Uh, the planetary God and why it's not universal. I'm here with Nancy Ellen Abrams and she's the author of A God That Could Be Real, Spirituality, Science, and the Future of Our Planet. If you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, nancyellenabrams.com or you can get to that website through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms, you're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Nancy Ellen Abrams, and she's the author of A God That Could Be Real, Spirituality, Science, and the Future of Our Planet. And we're talking about the reality of God. And we just said, okay, God is planetary. Oh, okay, now we put him, he, it, into this box. that it seemed, it, Did we just
2: demote God? <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. If you think about God the way that I do, it is huge compared to the uh, uh, the traditional idea of um, some kind of a spirit that created the flat earth because that is what the Genesis picture is. God right. was planetary in the beginning. In Genesis, God creates the flat earth. That's it. You don't hear about God creating galaxies. They never even knew about them. So I'm just really coming back to a very old idea. Right. But look, the important thing that I'm, I'm really trying to get across in this book is that the way that we think about God is going to affect the way that we behave. It's going to affect our expectations of each other. It's going to affect whether we are in conflict with other people, whether we respect other people. There are enormous implications for our planet, because right now we have these different versions of God, and every single version, its followers believe, is universal— So, naturally, they think everyone else is wrong. They're in
1: conflict then, yes. They're
2: in conflict. We have to get past that because in the long term, how is the human species going to get past our current problems and develop a truly long-term civilization unless we can have some kind of agreement on what reality is? I'm not saying everybody has to buy my version of God, but what I'm saying is this is the only way I've come up with, or I've seen anyone else come up with, that is equally true for everybody on earth, and that ties us into science that I, first of course, I need to explain what my view is, but there's a reason why it really matters to change our ideas of God, not to just hold on to traditions that are not helping us to solve the problems of our planet.
1: Okay, so this is this is about this crucial pivotal time we're living in where 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 you y- you you use the word uh we as a species are uh, have been elected to a cosmic congress so to speak yes. mm-hmm. <laughs> and i i like that one a cosmic congress that, that that we're making decisions now for our great 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 grandchildren and so that's why this is so important. It's so important we this are not, time.
2: We are not just a package of organs in a skin with maybe a soul. That's not how we should think of ourselves. Each one of us represents the entire evolution of the human species as it's passing through the 21st century.
1: Now, I think that you need to say something about the theory of emergence. Yes. Let's let's get to that theory because that has something to do with... with the
2: God, emerging God. So in my quest to figure how could God actually be real or what what real thing would be worthy of the name God, that's really how I looked at it, it occurred to me that um, emergent phenomena are real. Now, let me tell you what that is. Uh, I'll do it by an example. Ants. Ants are really very, very simple creatures. Really, all they know how to do is to... They they follow pheromone trails, you know, little scent scent trails. And they can um, tell the difference between meeting two ants in a minute and, say, 200 ants. But that's the extent of their communication abilities. That's it. That's all they do. And yet, if there are 10,000 ants together in a colony... The colony has very sophisticated abilities. It can uh, adjust the number of ants going out to forage for food, the number of ants sent down to do child care, the number of it. It can uh, send ants out to compete with other ant colonies. It knows how many mouths there are to feed. I mean, it's the, the colony acts like an organism, but there's not a single ant that understands any of that. So there's no CEO of the ant there's village. There's no CEO. There's no manager. There's <laughs> no architect that can build an anthill taller than a man. But there's no engineers. How? What is going on? How does this collective activity run? A colony is what's called an emergent phenomenon. What happens is that in emergence when there are very complicated interactions among many, many, many parts, when you step back and zoom out, on a larger size scale, something completely new emerges that's different from the parts, but based entirely on what they're doing. So the colony does not emerge from the nature of the ants. It emerges from the complexity of their interactions. This is the key. So whenever any situation gets complex enough, something utterly new will emerge. Now, I, I want to say too, if we're going to talk about
1: like God or consciousness, this is this is something that cannot be measured. It's not energy. It's not matter. It cannot be quantified. So, um, but there is something that emerges that uses this theory let's say you in fact you give several examples in the book one is the market another mm-hmm. is the media mm-hmm. you know and they 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 feel real not i mean i I'm, I'm going beyond the anthill which is an actual thing you can see touch feel but something that is more
2: amorphous the hill it, is not the hill is not the emergent phenomenon the colony is the colony builds the hill Okay. okay. It is abstract. So
1: so if the energy of the colony, the yeah. the, the the way it interacts is the emergent phenomenon. Yeah.
2: yeah. And you're absolutely right. The the economy is an emergent phenomenon from us, from trading and the government emergent phenomenon, the media. And these things are absolutely real because they have immense power over our lives. They really control us. So how how does God then fit into this? God can only have emerged from us, from human beings. And by saying this, I am not saying that human beings created God because emergence doesn't happen by any intention. The ants did not create the colony. Emergence created it out of the laws of nature. And that's what happens with us. Something is emerging from us. What it is, is what I believe it is, is that it is emerging from the staggering complexity of our aspirations interacting. It is i think aspirations are the key to what makes us human i think that's what divided us from the animals
1: so it's not our tool making or our language uh, you know many animals have language we know dolphins have very extensive and whales extensive language we you know apes and chimpanzees and bonobos and all of that and and uh, even crows use Tools. So it's, that's not separating us, but there is another, and you call it, as, we are an aspiring species. We aspire to exactly. something. Exactly.
2: That is what characterizes us. And all those things you mentioned, our tool making, our technology, everything that we have created, has only come about because we were aspiring to do something better, bigger, with more people. We don't just change in order to adapt to external circumstances. We humans change because we want to, because we feel driven to, because this is our purpose.
1: But I have to go back to the ants then, Nancy. Maybe the ants aspired to the col- to the colony sort of uh,
2: situation. I doubt that because they don't have brains that are big enough. It really takes a certain consciousness okay. to understand this. And in fact, or to um, participate in it consciously, is that what you're saying? Yes, to participate consciously, but also even to understand that emergence is a phenomenon. Um, (laughs) The ants don't know what they're doing, they don't appreciate. Their enormous contributions. Ants move around the, 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 move nutrients around all over the earth. They are very important. They're huge. They don't know how important they are. They can't even appreciate it, don't have the brain power. Well,
1: we do. We do. So we have self reflection. We can see what we're doing to the planet, we can understand. I, I don't know, on a psychological and sociological context that we're living in.
2: Yeah, we we apparently don't have any limits to what we can understand. We we have to work hard to learn things, but we there's no obvious limit. So we really could start to understand how a God could emerge from us. I mean, emergence is real. And when we start to think about God this way, we realize that all of us are participants in hundreds of emergent phenomena— you are a participant in the in the radio industry, or in the communications industry, in the publishing industry. I mean, people are par- are participants in in various sciences and art forms and businesses and so forth. We're all much bigger than we think we are. These roles in our many many emergent phenomena are part of our identity. And if we start to claim this big identity, we start to move in the direction of finding our cosmic identity. If we don't think of ourselves this way, but we just think of ourselves as a little local package of organs inside skin, we really will never understand the idea of emergence or that we are part of something that is amazing. So what are we praying to? Can
1: God answer prayer?
2: Okay, so... God, if it is an emergent phenomenon from us, is here and present on earth. Everywhere there are human beings or any kind of human artifact or any mountain or river that humans have given meaning to. If God is emerging from us, then God did not create the universe, but God created the meaning of the universe. And that's what matters to us. That's the definition of of um, matters is that it's meaningful. So it's meaningful, okay. So what that gives us is a God that is truly present, close to us. Like I was saying before, the things that matter, the thing, the people that matter in our lives are the ones that are close to us. This gives us a God that is here and present right between you and me. If we're creating some kind of a new idea, God is emerging right here. And all of this is feeding into what is now a global God. You
1: know, Nancy, as I was reading your book and uh, going over it, I got this image that in, in about prayer because prayer is important to me. Mm-hmm. And and what, do, how does it work? And does it work? And is there an energy that I'm connecting with? And in reading your book, I got this image that I am like going back to Star Trek. I am like Spock and and if you know Star Trek he would do something called mind meld and he where he would go and and he could put his hands on some entity or some person and he would then merge with this other entity and so I thought okay prayer prayer is me doing a mind meld with this huge energy resource that has been co-created by all of us.
2: That's right. That's absolutely a great image.
1: Oh, great. (laughs) Let's talk more about it in just one moment. I'm here with Nancy Ellen Abrams, and she's the author of A God That Could Be Real, Spirituality, Science, and the Future of Our Planet. I'm here with Nancy Ellen Abrams, and she's the author of A God That Could Be Real, Spirituality, Science, and the Future of Our Planet. And we are talking about prayer. So I, is there anything that you want to add to this idea of prayer, Nancy?
2: Absolutely. Uh, so to me, prayer is not asking for favors. Um, I don't believe that God can discriminate between us any more than gravity can. What we need to do as prayer is to is to change our consciousness to come into the reality where an emerging God can exist. So whenever, for example, when I just say the word God, it automatically starts to enlarge my consciousness. It starts to take me away from the trivial that's around me. And I start to move into this understanding of the larger me, the bigger identity that, that I consider cosmic. So one of the things that I do in my book is that I have these guided I call them contemplations where i uh where I help people to understand what it would feel like to really believe the things that we know are true but are very hard to believe basically you know this is a new science and when you move into this uh this new way of thinking and you actually feel yourself part of this uh double dark universe with Uh, emergence as one of its fundamental characteristics. As you move into that, that is a form of prayer. That is how you are actually approaching God. You're getting very close. The, The deeper you feel that you're part of this universe and you connect to it, the closer you're actually getting to this God. It is Absolutely, a new form of prayer.
1: I, I just I think of the work of Bucky Fuller, which goes back to our origins of new dimensions back in the early seventies, mm-hmm. and how he was very very precise about words and how we we talk about our place in the cosmos. He was just. Adamant, and he he was somebody saying, "Well, what about going out into space?" And he would just rip, and he'd say, "Wait a minute, we're not going out into space. We are in space. We're ripping through space right now." And he would give us the word "sun," uh, "sun," "sight," and "earth rise" instead of "sunset," and you know. uh, Morning, what sunset and and sunrise? Because it really put us in the context of the Earth moving around. And one of your meditations is this rotation of the Earth and what's actually happening.
2: Yes, and when you feel yourself part of the Earth and you looking and you look toward the sunset and you see the horizon rising toward the sun, and then you look to the other side and you see the full moon. The moon sight, yes. Yes, and then as the moon. Um, as the horizon falls away from the moon, the moon becomes whiter. It starts out. So it's putting, orange. positioning us. It's feeling that you're the earth turning. The thing is that we all know this. Every educated person knows that if the sun isn't really rising, that the earth is turning. But we act as if it's not true. We right. feel right. nothing. Right. But we sh- But if we did feel it, it would actually be so much more beautiful. And it's a kind of prayer, then, you're saying. It is absolutely a prayer. When you move into the real universe and you start to feel that you are part of this Earth, you're part of the local group of galaxies in this enormous supercluster that we're part of, in this gigantic cosmos that is actually something like 46 billion light years. Back, that's how far it is out to the uh, stuff that radiated the cosmic background. So I, when you feel you're part of that... You're part of the universe that has made it possible for a god to emerge. Mm.
1: This is why, like, origin stories and, and knowing our place in the universe is
2: important. It's so important. And the thing is that what really unites people, what unites a culture, is to share a sense that we come from the same place. Even today, when you, if you're in a foreign country— And you meet another American. (laughs) Even though you'd have nothing in common in the United States, you'd rather sort of hang out with them so you could speak English. People are attracted to people who are like them. And the fact is, every single human on Earth shares this, this amazing cosmic origin story. And if we could understand that we have really come a long road together since the Big Bang, we would see that it's only the tiniest little bit of history the last, you know, few centuries that have actually divided us from each other, and we can, we need to get past that because we will be a cosmic, we will be a global civilization in a cosmic context in the near future.
1: So I know that you have some ideas about how to bring uh, forth the scriptures and religions in harmony with reality. And you, th- you mentioned four different actions that can help to help us. And I'd, I'd love for you to, to talk about some of those actions.
2: Well, the idea is that uh, all of us feel most comfortable in the religion that we grew up in or that we've uh, mostly associated with because there are symbols that just make us feel at home. And I absolutely do not want anybody to think that what I'm proposing is in... Uh, conflict with any of that there's no reason we can't keep our religions but as i say in the book just like anything that you use on a regular basis for a long time it's got to be cleaned out once in a while Right. You know, you've got to clean your refrigerator yeah. once right. in a while, and you have to clean your religion once in a while, too, because it gets completely covered with sticky notes of ideas that were put on by various leaders who had mm-hmm. political agendas or who were confused or, you know, whatever, for whatever reason. And the core truths of our religions—and no religion's going to last 1,000 or 2,000 years unless it has some really beautiful core truths—the core truths are hidden underneath all these sticky notes—
1: so like one of those core truths would be the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Absolutely. That, that's like a
2: love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Honor your father and your mother. Right. But you know, let's but let's think of what that means. Honor your father and your mother. That doesn't just mean the two people who gave birth to you. Your father and your mother are your ancestors all the way back. All the way, not just the human ancestors, but your primate ancestors and all of the creatures that came before them. The first cell, the dark matter that formed our galaxy. These are our parents. And the stardust that we are made of. The stardust we're (laughs) made of. Honor all the way. And when you honor all the way, you start feeling part of this big story. That's how you should interpret. We can reinterpret almost all of our beautiful religious uh, iconography as well as language in ways that speak to our universe. So one of the things that this does that I think is a
1: really, really important is that it it gives us that concept that you call the truth box. And I'd love for you to describe what you
2: you mean about the truth box. It's difficult to figure out how do you clean out a religion. So what I did was I offered a model from physics. And here's the idea. Uh Newtonian physics is not overthrown by Einstein. So let's say Newtonian, one of the
1: main ideas is, is gravity. Yes. Is that right? New- okay.
2: Newton figured out how the solar system works. Newton understood that the same force that pulls an apple off a tree and makes it hit the ground is the force that is holding the planets in their orbits. Okay, so now we're not going to throw that out because that is a good concept. That's true. What happened after Newton, because this worked so, because physics after Newton was so brilliant and worked so well, is that scientists extrapolated Newtonian physics to the entire universe and they assumed Uh, the whole universe operates just like the solar system. Wrong. But but, they had no evidence, so what do they know? So Einstein comes along in the early 20th century and he figures out how do you, uh, how can you think about uh, intense gravitational fields and really high speeds, speeds close to the speed of light? Because when you're talking about those things, Newtonian physics doesn't work at it all. It doesn't work. Does not work. So,
1: and it doesn't work with the smallest, smallest particles. No, either. it doesn't it, work
2: with quantum-sized particles either. Like Newtonian physics and, works yeah. with the kind of size, with the uh, kind of middling size scales and slow. You know, easy gravitational fields that we're used to. So
1: relativity doesn't
2: doesn't doesn't
1: it, it, it it's it's embraces Newtonian physics, but it's bigger than
2: it's bigger than. So what happens in a scientific revolution now is that the new picture doesn't overthrow the old picture; it encompasses it. It is like a big sphere, and the old picture is on the inside, and the truth box is. The box, for for Newton, it's the box that represents where you can completely rely on Newtonian physics to be absolutely right. And you can in certain limited situations. Okay,
1: Nancy, I just, because, oh my goodness, we're running out of time, but I just want to say quickly, then it becomes bigger quantum physics then encompasses relativity, and then beyond that, the future encompassing theory might be string theory, might be something else. So... All of these are contained within one another. One, The bigger one contains
2: the other truths. The main point is, the main point that I, I know you're trying to get to is that truth has to be limited. If it's not contained inside a larger theory, you cannot know that it's true. So, for example, Newtonian physics is limited by relativity, so we know that within its limits it's true, but relativity is not yet limited by any other theory, so we don't know how far we can trust it. That's the idea. That model, if we could take that for religion and say that the core, where we could limit what is true, where we we can actually say this is true, we could have a truth box, but outside the the claims about uh, the natural world, about social... expectations and so forth that come out of the Bible, those things are outside the truth box and probably not true. So, uh, you know, you have taken us on a whirlwind,
1: and there's so many more questions we have that we'd like to mm. ask, I know, but I think that people are going to have to pick up your book and, and read it for themselves and, and get with small groups and talk about it. Uh, I want to thank you so much, Nancy, for being part of New Dimensions today.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me. I really do appreciate
1: you doing this. I've been speaking with Nancy Ellen Abrams. She's the author of A God That Could Be Real, Spirituality, Science, and the Future of Our Planet. If you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, com, Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3595.
0: New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Please visit us at newdimensions.org, where you can subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. That's newdimensions.org. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. Since 1973, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge of culture, the arts, science, health, psychology, spirituality, and a host of other fields. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. That's NewDimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners.